We're going to be looking at Luke 19 today, but before we do that, let me mention one more thing about uh, Betty Gleason. Betty uh, has an infection in her foot and is unable to stand on it. She has a husband who is incapable of caring for his own needs and a relative who just is staying with him while he's recovering from surgery. So they need some meals to be made. And uh, if any of you would be willing to do that, even today or in the week to come, would you let me know and I'll give you their number and you can call them and make arrangements about that. Uh, We are in Luke 19. This is the final message in the series in the Gospel of Luke. I hope it's been as helpful to you as it has been to me. Um, Back in chapter 9, this is chapter 19, back in chapter 9, Luke began describing a journey to Jerusalem. He writes there that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Greek is something like Jesus set his face. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. His disciples, especially the ones closest to him, could see in his face a determination. Nothing was going to deter him from Jerusalem. And they concluded that his destiny awaited him there, and they were right. But they didn't know what that destiny was to be. They assumed that when he arrived in the holy city, he would raise an army and declare himself king. That he would take steps to oust the illegitimate occupational government and set up the kingdom of God on earth. And with his extraordinary abilities, nothing could stop him. The events outlined in our text take place on the outskirts of Jericho, which is about 11 miles from Jerusalem. In other words, the end of the journey is in view. The next, very next episode that Luke relates for us is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. If you remember, there's enormous excitement swirling around Jesus as he entered the city. It's come to be known as the triumphal entry. Massive crowds accompanied him, having come down from Galilee for the Passover. And they were singing and shouting things like, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A line that comes directly from Psalm 18 and was thought to refer to the Messiah. As the people shouted out these rousing statements, uh, insightful statements, really, and inciting, inciting uh, um, perhaps even riots, the Pharisees came to Jesus and begged him to quiet his disciples, fearing that the Romans would use lethal force to disperse them. Many in the crowd, and especially the disciples, were anticipating a revolution when Jesus arrived in the capital city. That was not what Jesus was anticipating, at least not in the way that they understood it. He would revolutionize the world, all right, but he would do so not by conquering, but by submitting, not by killing, but by dying. But the crowds, especially the disciples, had other ideas. And so Jesus told the parable that we have in our text before he arrived in Jerusalem to correct their thinking. Now look at Luke chapter 19. We'll start with verse 11 and read down through verse 28. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. 
He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. That word is almost impossible to actually pronounce. It's something like mina, but I'll just say minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, Yamina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, Yamina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you didn't put in and reap what you didn't sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, that taking out what I didn't put in and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be king over them, Bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, if you look back in the text, just before saying this, Jesus had said, today salvation has come to this house. When people heard that line, today salvation has come, they must have thought that revolution was at hand. So Jesus, verse 11, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom was going to appear at once. So this story is intended to correct their thinking about how and when the kingdom arrives. Jesus' story is about a man who was well-born. The Greek word is eugenes. We get our word eugenics from that word. Uh, A man of noble birth who went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. To us, that might seem like a strange way of going about things, but to Jesus' hearers, it would have seemed all too familiar. Both Herod the Great and his son Archelaus had journeyed to Rome to receive the title king. Herod, in his time, was granted the title. Archelaus, in 4 BC, 40 years later, was not. Rome affirmed Archelaus' authority to govern, but denied him the title king until he should prove worthy of it, which he never did. Um, More about that coming up. Now, remember Jesus told this story because many in the crowd, including some of his disciples, were expecting the kingdom to come immediately. That is, upon his arrival in Jerusalem. It's just 11 miles away. Now, notice that the man in Jesus' story went to a distant country to receive the kingdom. Now, as we read through this, this story is hardly a point-by-point allegory. But remember, it was meant to change the disciples' thinking about how and when the kingdom was going to arrive. Now, Jesus went into a distant country, into the lands of death and resurrection, to receive his authority 
as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what the biblical doctrine of the ascension of Christ is all about. He didn't merely ascend into heaven, he ascended to a throne and received his kingdom. And when you listen to this story that Jesus tells, don't miss the fact that the man who went to receive a kingdom was planning on returning. That's consistent with Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels. He constantly reminded his hearers that he would return, something that only makes sense if he was going to go away. But that's not something the disciples realized as he told this story. Before he left, this is verse 13 now, the nobleman called 10 of his servants and gave them each a mina. A mina equaled 100 denarii in value, and a denarii equaled a day's wage for a common laborer. So Amina amounted to about three and a half months of wages for the average worker. That was not a great deal of money to someone in the position that this man held. So it seems likely that Jesus wants us to picture him as testing his servants. The Amina gave them a chance to show what they could do, or better, to show what they could become. As he was preparing to leave, the nobleman said to his servants, put this money to work until I get back. The Greek for put it to work could be translated do business or take care of business. It's a vigorous word. Nobleman didn't want his servants to be slackers. Now, Jesus' story takes a twist. He leaves for the time being the nobleman's servants and focuses on his subjects. As soon as the nobleman headed off to that far country, his subjects sent a delegation, the word means something like an ambassador, to the lord of the far country to protest the nobleman's appointment. They said, we don't want this man to be our king, or literally, we will not have this man be king over us. Now, that can't help but remind us of how people, especially leaders in Israel, reacted to Jesus. John says that he came unto his own, but his own received him not. One thinks of Pilate's sardonic introduction of Jesus to the Jewish leaders. He brings them out in front of the Jewish leaders and says, here is your king. And what did they say? They said, take him away, take him away. They said as plainly as the delegation in Jesus' story, we don't want this man to be our king. We will not have this man be king over us. Now hearing the story told, think of the crowds, they could not understand how it pointed forward to Jesus. And for that matter, neither could the disciples. But everyone understood how it pointed backward. I mentioned just a moment ago that both Herod the Great and his son Archelaus went to Rome to receive authority to govern, but that Archelaus was denied the title king until he should prove worthy of it. Now here's the rest of the story, which we don't know, but everyone listening to Jesus on that day knew this story. After Archelaus went to Rome to receive his title, his subjects sent a delegation to the emperor after him to ask that he not be granted the kingship. They detested him, and he gave them good reason to detest him. At the first Passover following his succession, and remember, right now, when Jesus is telling this story, it's Passover time. He's headed to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover so that this story would come quickly to their minds. At, at Archelaus' succession and at that first Passover, he massacred 3,000 of his own subjects. Things in the Middle East 
have not changed much in 2,000 years. To Jesus' hearers, this story did not sound like fiction. It sounded like history, their history. To them, it seemed perfectly reasonable. They, certainly most of them, and certainly their parents, had lived through Archelaus' reign. And Jericho was a particularly fitting place to tell this story since Archelaus had built a palace there. Perhaps they could see it off in the distance, even as Jesus was telling the story. Now, after the little excursus about the unhappy subjects who send the delegation, Jesus returns to the storyline, which is about the servants. The nobleman was made king, and the first thing he did upon his return was summon the ten servants to whom he'd given the minas. In verse 15, he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they gained with it. Now, though there were ten servants, Jesus only tells us about three. They were perhaps representative of the rest. The first, who seemed eager to give his report, came and said, Sir, your minas earned ten more. Now, that's a thousand percent profit. This guy had been taking care of business. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Now, notice the king considered the mina a very small matter. Even the thousand percent interest was a small thing to him. But his servant's trustworthiness was a very big thing to his master. I'm going to wait until that's done. There we go. (laughs) Let me say that again. The mina was a small matter. The thousand percent interest was a small matter. The servant's trustworthiness was huge. As far as he was concerned, this had never really been about the money. It's a small matter, very small matter. It was about finding out what was in his servants and bringing out the best in them. The second servant stepped up and said, Sir, your mean has earned five more. He too had been taking care of business. But again, the master's concern was not to make money so much as to discover and bring out the best in his servants. And the second servant received the same kind of answer as the first. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. And before we go on, notice carefully what kind of reward was given to the trustworthy servants and what kind of reward was not given. They were not given extended vacation time. They were not given a company chariot to drive. They were not given a pay raise. Instead, their reward was more work to do. The first servant was given 10 cities to rule. What was one mina or even 10 compared to that? A hundred times that would pass through his hands in a week. The second servant was given five cities to rule. What were five minas compared to that? Now here's a principle to remember. The reward of faithfulness is not ease, but greater responsibility. And the reward of greater responsibility is becoming all that the master intends you to be. You should answer. Maybe the Lord's calling us and he wants to. <laughs> Look at the third servant. He was not so eager to give his report. He didn't come with five or ten minas or even with two. He came with one and with a boatload of excuses. 
Now remember, it wasn't the money that the master cared about, but about the servant. As with the first and second servants, the mina was a means of revealing what the servant was made of. If it didn't bring out the best in him, it would at least bring out what was real in him. That's something to remember when God gives us responsibilities as well. We think it's all about our success, but it's not. It's about what he's doing in and through us. So this servant tells the king, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. By the way, in the Talmud, there were actually rules for what to, how to keep something safe that was entrusted to your care. And the, um, the smallest requirement was that it be buried in the earth in a secret place. This guy didn't even meet the smallest requirement. He says, I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you didn't put in and reap what you didn't sow. In English, we find the word you or your six times in this short speech. In Greek, the same emphasis is there. The servant says, in effect, my situation is the way it is because you are the way you are. It's not my fault, it's you. But whose character is really revealed by this speech? The master's or this man's own character? His master tells him, okay, I will judge you by your own words. Now, that's reminiscent of Jesus' teaching elsewhere. In a context in which the Pharisees were whispering among themselves that Jesus was a bad person, he said, I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Sometimes people ask, and I've heard this many times, and it's a huge stumbling block for people, how it's possible for God to judge a person who doesn't even know about Christ. Well, here's a partial answer. It's not intended to be a full answer, but just a partial answer. Those people and everyone else will be fairly and truly judged by their own words, by their own beliefs. No one will be able to say, this isn't fair, because their words will stand in judgment over them. No one will be able to say, I didn't know, because they'll be judged by what they did know. That, by the way, is Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, if you want to look it up. What they said will be measured against what they did, and judgment will reveal what they are. And there will be no question about it. None at all. We think primarily of God's judgment as punitive, But that doesn't do justice to biblical teaching, which primarily views God's judgment as revelatory. It will, these are St. Paul's words on the subject, bring to light, the judgment will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. The judgment will reveal who we really are. And so the master pulls the rug out from under his servant's feet. If he really believed what he said he believed, he would act differently. Now look at verse 24. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. And now comes the point. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. That is a rule of the kingdom. 
emphasized in different ways in at least five places in the Gospels. Jesus isn't saying that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. He's saying that the faithful person receives further opportunity to be faithful, but the unfaithful person loses what opportunity he has. Now we'll think about that more in a moment because that is immediately relevant to our situation. Now look at verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Those enemies may have hoped that the king had forgotten about them, but he had not. And again, this would strike a chord among people who had been ruled by Archelaus. Jesus, thankfully, is no Archelaus. But don't miss the fact that his coming has left everyone with a decision to make. Will I submit to the rule of God over my life that Jesus brings? Or will I reject him? And that decision is, like the decision in the story, a matter of life and death. Now go back to the statement, verse 26. To everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. Now I mentioned this idea is repeated five times in the Gospels, including earlier in this Gospel, in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus said, whoever has will be given more, whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. Now, I said this is immediately relevant to us. This applies to us, even as we sit in this building and listen to a sermon. Some of us here are on our way to more and more. More understanding, greater service, abounding grace, fuller joy. But some of us here are on our way to less and less less understanding, smaller sphere of service, a deficiency of grace, a shortage of joy. Why is that? Does God play favorites? Not at all. Whether we are on the way to more and more or on the way to less and less depends not on God's willingness, but on our faithfulness. I can even tell you whether you're on your way to more or to less. I only need the answer to one question from you. What are you doing right now with what God has given you? If you're using for God's sake what he's given you, that is you're taking care of business, God will give you more and more. If not, even what you have will be taken away. That's the case whether what God has given you is an outgoing personality or using it for him or merely for yourself or the gift of teaching or some acute ability to perceive truth. This holds true for profound things. It holds true for mundane things. What are you doing with the car God has given you, the job, the paycheck? All can be used for his service. And this is eminently true of the gospel. Have you received the good news of Christ as Lord? If so, what are you doing with it? Are you living it? Are you sharing it? Your hold on the gospel grows stronger and stronger when you live and share it. When you don't, your grasp on it weakens and all kinds of other things flood in to take its place. Whoever has will be given more. 
Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. By the way, the gospel is like the mina in this story. Both the servants who come and say, your minas are in 10, your minas are in 5, they don't say, I did this. They say, your mina did this. And that's the way it is with the gospel. All we have to do is live and share it. The gospel does the work. It's also true when it comes to a word from the Lord. Which is why in Luke 8, another place where we find something like this, Jesus prefaced his statement about whoever has will be given more, whoever does not have will lose even what he thinks he has. In preface to that statement, Jesus says, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. A person who hears God speak to him in church, for example, and does nothing with what God says will lose that word from the Lord. If he makes a habit of not acting on what God says, he'll eventually lose his ability to hear what God speaks. For example, God may have spoken to you in the past few weeks. Perhaps he revealed to you something in your life that's holding you back from knowing him the way he longs for you to know him. Hypocrisy, greed. If you've done nothing with that word from the Lord, he spoke it to you, but you've done nothing with it, you'll lose it. And the opportunity it afforded you to become everything God wants you to be. Perhaps God's called you to some act of obedience recently, to give to someone in need, to forgive someone who's caused offense, to serve someone who could use your help. You heard it all right, but you haven't acted on it. If you continue to ignore what God said, it will stop bothering you, but only because it will be taken away from you, and you will also lose the enormous opportunity it afforded. We are, if we've received God's grace and acknowledged Jesus as Lord, we're the servants of Christ. Like the servants in this story, we're his servants. We are in his employ, graced with the gospel of God and the gifts of the Spirit to use for the glory of our master. If you say, but my gifts are small, then I'll just answer with Jesus. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Be faithful in the little he's given you and see what happens. I'm convinced that some of the people in heaven that we will be absolutely amazed at, who will be so glorious that we're tempted to worship them, will be people who receive very little and we're faithful with it. Now let me tell you a story in closing. One of the big rock bands in the 1970s and 80s kept a really weird demand in their performance contracts. They insisted that a bowl of M&Ms be provided backstage at every concert. A bowl of M&Ms, but with every single brown M&M removed from the bowl. If they found even one brown M&M in the bowl, it gave them the right to void their contract and go home and still get paid. And the first thing they did when they arrived was to check that bowl of M&Ms. Now, that seems really strange. Did one of the band members have this crazy obsession about brown M&Ms? No, they only put that into the contract because they knew that if people didn't bother to do the small things right, they wouldn't do the big things right either. And there were so many big things, technical matters, stages need to be reinforced, um, security needed to be all set up. Their lead singer said that if they ever found even one brown M&M in the dish, 
they would immediately line check the entire production. And he could guarantee that if they found a brown M&M, that they would find major problems unaddressed. See, they understood that whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. Now, what has God entrusted to you? What word from the Lord has he entrusted to you? What gift has he given you to use? What are you doing with it? The master is saying, take care of business until I return. Are you doing that? Are you taking care of business? Listen to what the Lord says to you now. Let's pray. I'm going to be quiet for a moment just so the Lord can speak to your hearts. Our Master, we have asked for great gifts. For gifts of teaching. We've asked for gifts of healing. We've asked you to give us people as a church family. But you've asked for faithfulness. And so, Lord... This morning, we don't ask for more gifts, but for your grace to be faithful with the ones you've already given us. Lord, speak into our hearts what you want us to do and grant us grace and courage to respond. In the name of Jesus, our Master.